From across the street of the Texas State Capitol in Austin, this is the Trey Blocker Show. Starring Charlie Hodge and Trey Blocker with today's guest, former state representative Susanna Hupp. And here's Trey Blocker. Thank you, Charlie Hodge, and welcome to this episode of the Trey Blocker Show. We're glad to be here today and glad to have in the studio former state representative Susanna Hupp. Welcome. Hola. <laughs> or, or wait a minute, I'm practicing for my, my A&M visit this weekend. Howdy. 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 Drop your ring Howdy. in the beer. That's right. And let's begin. Not me, but you're right. We should start start shows saying howdy. 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 So thanks for coming. And to give our audience a little bit of background on you, and, and, and we already talked about the if the more stories I tell about Susanna, the more stories she's going to tell about me. So this I could be a, that point. a yes. spiraling, <laughs> this could be a death spiral at some point. So I'm going to try to choose my to words carefully. Uh, Susanna grew up in Friendswood, Texas, attended the University of El Paso, and got a doctorate in chiropractic from the Chiropractic College of Pasadena, yep. and practiced for quite some time in Copper's Cove, Texas. Uh, she served in the Texas House of Representatives from 1996 to 2006. I didn't realize it had been 10 years. That 10 years seemed to fly. Actually, 12, because I stayed through the first week of uh, uh, 2007. Okay. So I got my 12 in. Good. Nice. Well, I got to tell you, Trey, sitting in this room, um, I realized it's rare to be be around somebody that knows way more about you than you do about them. <laughs> this is going to be such a polite, polite I show. I, you know, I, not a lot of those people out there. I no, think. and I didn't think very. I didn't think this through, did I? I did not think this. You through. go ahead. You go ahead. You tell whatever stories you want. Okay. I'll, I'll help you embellish okay. them. Okay. So, in the, the in to to clue in our audience, the reason you and I know each other so well is because back in. I guess 1997 and 1999, you had this rock star chief of staff. Uh, I think it was even longer than that. It was a while. He he came in. He was very shy. That would when he that came would in. be me okay, if you didn't right, catch okay, yes, catch you. on to okay. that. Okay. Yeah, he came in very shy, young man. But uh, I could tell by his libertarian views that he was the guy for the office. I mean, that is what she said. Have you heard this story before? I imagine you have. Not that she know. said. Oh, no, there's all, and, and she was a little more. You know, uh, layman about it. She was like, "Oh God, there's all these people in there, and they're all a bunch of, you know, wanted to climb to the tops." And I don't know if I can trust him, but the, there's one guy whose libertarian views were so apparent that I thought, <laughs> "Well, this guy at least is going to tell me to my face if he tries to." Yep. You know, and screw I knew he wasn't going to be working behind my back. <laughs> that was it. To, yeah, exactly. Yeah, will not be bills. working behind my back. That was it. You know, it's a. Uh, you know, I can only assume that as a legislator, it helps to have staff that's philosophically aligned with you. I mean, I think we were pretty much in lockstep on pretty much every issue, and it yeah. it kind of helps when you're when you're scheming and concocting ideas and legislation and amendments and things of that yeah, sort. Yeah, absolutely. But we had fun. I thought we had a lot of fun. Yeah, that's because you weren't on the floor taking the beating. <laughs> yeah, I just came up with ideas. I'd say, Susanna, here's an amendment here's, to this Here's bill. a great idea. A Here, go, great go idea. stick your neck out on the platform for this one to get chopped off. <laughs> Let me ask y'all something. As, as people who have been through it, Trey, you got to start with someone who was also starting themselves, which is different than getting your first job with someone who's been around the block, around the Capitol a bunch of times. Is, do you think that's a benefit? Do you think it gave you like when you when you see other people that maybe start for a, a career politician? It, you know, it's the blind leading the blind is what it really is. I'm not sure it benefits anybody. Well, but now you had actually started with someone else. That's true, and and I, and I had already been there through a right, session, so right. that's so not entirely you totally. Right. Y'all weren't that green, yeah. novices. No, I, I knew where the bathrooms were, right. <laughs> which is that's, important. That's, that's saying something. It yeah. is. I had interned for Governor Bush, okay. and then I had worked a session after that with a state representative out of Denton named Jim Horn. You remember Jim oh, Horn? Oh, yeah, great guy. Very good guy. And then I then I went to work for Susanna while I was in law school. So I was also, when I started for you, a first-year law student, which meant I knew everything. <laughs> <laughs> I knew everything about the law, right? <laughs> he, he uh, no, in all honesty, you were an amazing asset to have there. You truly were, and I, I did feel like I could completely trust you, and you were good to bounce things off of that may have been a crazy idea of my own, but I needed to hear, you know, wait a minute, is this the place that we need to go? Is there some reason why we shouldn't go there? Is it, you know, 
So uh, having somebody with, with similar political views was very helpful. You know, a, a story just occurred to me that is I shouldn't tell on myself, but I'm going to because I'd rather tell it my way as opposed to you remembering it. I oh, I bet I know. Look at the jockeying. Yeah. It was, she it gets was a prediction. His, it was his near-death experience. Yeah. At my hands. Is it? Yes. If we're thinking about the same thing, but, you know, there were probably multiple events like that. I don't know. But, uh, you know, you get eventually as a staffer and as a legislator, I'm sure you get tired of of dealing with certain issues and you just get tired. Of, it's over and over and over and over. And Susanna had asked me, write an op-ed on this issue. We need to get it out there to the district and, you know, make, make, make my stance known, so to speak. So please write it and send me a draft. And I was in a particularly... Testy mood. That's a good way to put it. And so I drafted this very tongue-in-cheek, um, sarcastic, acerbic... Wait, now, now, okay, let me, let me just say that to your credit, it was something that we had probably, this was not the smartest thing in the world, but we had a habit of, you know, if I was going to respond in a letter, sometimes just to get things off my chest, I would write this absurd letter and then tear it up, trash it, and write a real letter, right? But it, it made me feel better, and sure. I think he was kind of going I, I that route. That. Yeah. Okay. Was it an op-ed or a press release? It was an op-ed. Okay. So I write this op-ed, and, and I basically just called it like I saw it. You know, this is, this is BS. You know, we shouldn't even have to be talking about this <laughs> issue. Really and I don't even remember what the issue was. But I it do. Was I'm rough. not going to mention Please it. Please don't. <laughs> I don't even remember oh, what it man. was, actually. And so I emailed it to her, and she calls within 15 minutes, and she says, this is a joke, right? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm on the house floor, yeah. by the way. That's how, our, you know, we're, we're going back and forth. I'm actually on the house floor when he does this. And I said, uh, she said, this is a joke, right? And uh, I said, yeah, it's funny, right? And she's like, yeah, it's really funny. Now write a real one. And I was like, yes, ma'am, I'll write a real one. So I wrote a real one and sent it to her and she approved it. And I said, okay, I'm going to go ahead and shoot it out to the press and I accidentally attached the two, wrong document. Two days later, yeah, I <laughs> see it in the, the paper. Like, is this early email? Because I'm thinking, you know, the no, 90s, you never know. No, if you're just no. sending a hard copy yeah. or email. No, but a couple of days later in the Colleen Daily Herald, it was like on the headlines of page, <laughs> you know, on the section B or whatever the heck it was. And I went, oh, good, you know, made it in. They put it in a great place above the fold. And I, I went to start reading it and went, oh, <laughs> I can't believe they printed that without calling and asking, but yeah. they did. Uh, you know, and I, accident? I, I called, it was a complete accident. Okay. I, I, oh, I think he means on the part of the newspaper, was it an accident? Well, uh, well also, yeah, him. maybe call. he's like, oh. you know what? That first one I wrote was good. That was good. <laughs> no, I remember calling her and saying, uh, I am officially tendering my resignation. <laughs> and, she, and she's like, no, no, you're not. No, you're not. People make mistakes, and, and I appreciate you not firing me, but I deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> I really You're welcome. It. Bet you so, double check everything you send. And he owes me dinner to this day. Yes, perpetually. He owes yes, you dinner. perpetually. Anytime she has. No, you know yeah. what? Honestly, I I remember getting a few uh, calls, and we got a few calls and letters, but it wasn't that big of a deal. It really wasn't that big of a deal. It wasn't, and that kind of surprised that's, me that's too. Surprised that me was too. the really surprising part. Is we, you know, everybody just didn't get completely mad. They but, probably yeah, just anyway. thought, well, that's Susanna. That's that's and exactly that what may they be thought. True. That's exactly what they thought. So, you are married to your husband Greg. How long have y'all been married now? Gosh, we're coming up on 21 years. How did that happen? I don't know, because I remember when I was working for you, your sons, Alex and Ethan, were just little bitty. I think Ethan was a baby. Right. And Alex is a junior at Texas A&M, hence wow. the howdy. Howdy. Uh, he's in the Corps of Cadets there and, and going into engineering. And um, Ethan is a freshman at Northern Arizona University, but it looks like he's going to be coming back because he really wants that Aggie ring. And he wants to be an international lawyer. Thank you very much, Trey Blocker. Sorry, I don't know how that conversation went down like that, but uh, you sent him to me for for I don't advice. I don't know why yeah. he would have done that to begin with. He needs but, a mentor, so yeah. I I briefly made a mistake. And <laughs> well, is there something so about your youngest that reminds you of Trey in a little way? Yes, as a matter of fact, you're right. I hadn't thought about that. Yes. 
Ooh, yeah. yeah, it got quiet. No, well, what the hell is an true. international lawyer? I mean, it's, I've heard the term, you know but I thought is, it was made up. It's a lawyer who wants to who wants to travel and, and be involved. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, that's seriously, right. that's, that's right. largely it. Yeah. Okay. It's like a sports lawyer. It's a lawyer who wants to go to a bunch of football <laughs> games, right? Okay. Free tickets. And is that one of those jobs where what you think is your dream ends up being your curse? After about year four of going to every game, and you're, oh, you're yeah. just become, you're just like, oh, boy. I never I don't thought know. I'd hate this. I don't know. Do do fishing guides learn to no, hate they fishing? Don't. Yeah, they I didn't act, think they so. Don't. Okay. They don't. Good way to put it. I, Lloyd yeah. Epistemal in uh in Port A, um, he, he will be fishing in the clouds. I mean, I, I just know there's nothing he'd rather <laughs> it's just do. in their DNA. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. So Susanna, you are widely known in Texas and across the country for being a staunch supporter of the Second Amendment. Uh, and you and I, when we were working together, when you were in the legislature, worked on some fun stuff, I yeah. thought. Um, some of which is coming back around and has even come to fruition that we couldn't get more than a hearing for. You yes. That? Yeah. Funny. See, we were uh, trailblazers. Avant-garde. Trailblazers. Right. But there was one particular issue I, re- I remember arising at that time, and the attorneys who had represented the um, I guess the various cities who sued the tobacco companies, right, and they got the big oh, settlement, yeah. decided that they were going to go to big cities like Los Angeles and Chicago and New York. And, and what they did is they said to them, we want to represent you and file a lawsuit against all of the gun manufacturers for the gun violence in your cities, right, and hold the gun makers liable for gun violence. And, of course, all of the cities mm-hmm. said, yeah, sure, why not? Because the lawyers said... It's not going to cost you a dime, and we may get you billions of dollars, right? You saw that cigarette deal. Exactly, exactly. So Susanna and I were sitting around and, and thinking, well, what, what do we do about this? We certainly, and luckily it was during session that this was going on when it first started. So we drafted some legislation, worked with some other members mm-hmm. uh, to get legislation passed to prohibit cities in the state of Texas from filing lawsuits against gun manufacturers. So... You know, when we initially came up with the idea of the legislation, there were probably three or four cities who who had agreed to sue the gun makers. But by the time session ended, we had our bill passed, but now there were 10 or 12 cities that were on the bandwagon suing these cities, right? Like and northeastern cities? All over the place. No, this I was believe, Texas. Oh, this, this was all Texas within Texas? About, oh, right? Goodness. All over the country, Los Angeles, oh. Chicago. All oh, the I'm big, sorry. Okay, yeah, All yeah, the big yeah. you know, cities with liberal mayors yeah. were on this bandwagon, and Susanna and I are talking, and she says, well, we passed a bill in Texas, but that doesn't do any good if these other cities put the gun makers out of business. Yeah, exactly. And that was their goal, right? Either get a bunch of money or put them out of business, either one being acceptable options. So she said, well, what can we do? And like I said earlier, I was in law school, so I knew it all. I said, I don't know, but let me go to the law library. By this time, I think I was in my third year of law school, and I had to find the library. I didn't even know where the library <laughs> was at the law school. So we, we concocted this idea, and it was a pretty good idea, I thought, to sue the cities who were suing the gun manufacturers. And the premise of it was conspiracy to violate the Second Amendment and conspiracy to interfere with interstate commerce. And we ultimately, I think we were trying to figure out the numbers on this before the show, but ultimately we got uh, uh, more than 10, fewer than 20 legislators and about the same number of gun stores in Texas to be plaintiffs in this lawsuit against the cities. Uh, And we started a nonprofit legal foundation called the Civil Liberties Defense Foundation to raise money uh, to pursue this lawsuit. And with the idea that we could eventually move on to other civil liberties um, uh, issues if we chose to. Absolutely. And the interesting thing is all of these cities, and we knew we couldn't raise enough money to really pursue this lawsuit through a trial or even discovery for for that matter. But what it did is up to that point, there was no downside to the cities, right? They weren't spending any money. And so more and more cities kept jumping on this bandwagon. As soon as we filed our lawsuit, they now had to defend against a lawsuit. And so from that moment forward, not another city jumped on board this bandwagon, and eventually that lawsuit fell apart. So I don't know that we can take full credit for that happening but of course I, we can hopefully we had some of that <laughs> yeah no joke man no i i you know it's interesting because a lot of that i'd forgotten some of the detail of that but as you as you were speaking i was remembering some of that and that was a huge deal and it genuinely 
could have put an end to the Second Amendment in this country simply because there wouldn't have been any manufacturers. We, you know, your grandpa's gun was going to be it. We saved the Second Amendment. Yeah, rock on. Well, the late 90s was a very scary time for for gun legislation. Absolutely. I mean, it was it was it was touch and go. And especially with there was the they 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 beautifully mixed it with like rap music. Remember in bad language. Oh, it was yeah. all the scourge. Yeah. It was a scourge. That's right. That That's needed right. to be sued to death. Well, and you'll recall one of the issues also was that the uh, individual cities wanted to prevent you from being able to carry in their city. They were able to, they, they made individual laws that said, okay, once you hit our city limits, you can't carry anymore. And we went in, if you'll recall, and passed a bill. And I do say we because it is, it's definitely a group effort. Sure. Um, we went in and, and passed a, a law that said that uh, they could not make laws that preempted the, the Texas state law. And I can remember the argument from one gentleman who was a legislator at the time and who's now a mayor of a large city. <laughs> and I remember him from the back mic saying something about, well, Susanna, you're always talking about local control. How can you be against our local control of this issue? And I remember saying something along the lines of, we don't allow for local control of constitutional rights. That's right. I mean, if, can you imagine if we allowed for local control of whether or not, well, of the 14th Amendment? Sure. Or the, you know, or the first you name amendment. it. You, you name it. Can yeah. you imagine heading through and San so, Marcos and you and, and you lose freedom of speech? Yeah. So we simply don't do that. And I think once that was uh, brought uh, into the argument, people backed off very quickly. So I got to tell, you know, we could sit here honestly, probably tell know, stories sorry. all day, and we don't get together enough uh, to st- tell stories. So we, so now we're doing it on a podcast. But there is one really amazing story I remember f- from us flying all over the state we flew all over the state of texas raising money for this lawsuit for for the civil liberties defense foundation and i don't know how he found us or we found him but we got hooked up with this older gentleman out of fredericksburg who at that point was probably in his 80s he was a retired air force world war ii veteran who just wanted to help and so he had a plane he flew us all over the state and I remember one time we were going to the Lubbock. It was you and me and Jerry Patterson yeah. and Carl Isett. I don't know who else was with what us. What kind of plane? Uh, it was a it King was, Air. Yeah, oh, it was oh, a King oh, Air. Oh, it was a nice like plane. A six-seater <laughs> yeah, or it was a yeah. pretty nice plane. Okay. Uh, but I remember we're getting on the plane, and he says, Trey, why don't you come sit up next to me? So I get up there, and I put on the headphones. You know, I'm sitting next to him. We take off. And I look over. We're probably halfway to Lubbock, Texas, you know, from Austin. And I look over, and it all of a sudden dawns on me how old he was (laughs) right and I knew I and that sounds rude but I knew I didn't know how to fly a plane is what this really comes down to and if he were to have a heart attack we were all dead no Jerry Patterson was on the plane with us oh that's true he he's a he was there for but still Get, like, you're trying to but, get out but to you're make in the room. Right seat. I mean, there's plenty of time. <laughs> I your, your knees are hitting. Yeah, the, I would have gotten out of, out of the seat really quickly. I, just, I promise yeah, you. It's not, <laughs> a, it's not desirable. But, so that's not really why I brought this story okay. up. The reason I brought this story <laughs> up is because after World War II, he was flying, he was moving planes from Shepard Air Force Base in Wichita Falls in North Texas to San Antonio to one of the Air Force bases in San Antonio. And about three-fourths of the way to San Antonio, the engine went out on his plane. So he dead sticks, you know, no engine. Yeah. He's just holding on to the stick. He lands the plane in a cornfield outside of Fredericksburg, Texas. Wow. Right? Messes up a lot of corn. So the farmer comes out, luckily not too mad about the corn, gets his tractor, tows the plane back up to the house and to the barn. And, and so I, I wish I could remember his name. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. I can't tell you. Yeah, Uh, He called Lackland Air Force Base and said... Jaeger, I think (laughs) it was. (laughs) That's it. He calls Lackland Air Force Base and says, hey, the plane broke. Will you come get me? And they said, sure, but it's going to be a couple of days. So the farmer says, that's fine. You can stay here with us. So true story. I'm not making this up. It sounds like a joke. Susanna can verify this if she remembers it. He falls in love with the farmer's daughter... (laughs) He marries the farmer's daughter, and by the time he's flying us around, they had been married for 50 years. It's his farm. True story. Yeah. True story. Yeah. Yeah, But then it's his farm. That's that's right. That's exactly right. So great guy, great guy. Fell in love with the farmer's daughter. 
Could you imagine being a farmer's daughter back then? <laughs> your 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 prospects depend on someone falling from the sky. <laughs> That's an excellent. I, mean, point, I just yeah. like to think about her. I mean, she was like, "Thank goodness, thank God." Oh my God! Right? It was either Man the butcher's son heaven. or the garbage man's son at this point. I mean, there was nobody else, and all of a sudden, this he man, a man, falls from the sky. Isn't there? Isn't there a pop song about that? It's raining, man. It will. When that came out, I bet she was like, yes, I would like to buy this album. Story you guys are never going to have another podcast like this. I am so sorry that hey, we're just going off, for all, no, off for the rails. All we, for all we know, she may have written that song. Yeah. Oh, I mean, seriously. I mean, when you told that story, the first thing I thought is the farmer's daughter. I mean, that poor, she was probably looking to... Oh, man, her prospects were dim, and all of a sudden, like, <laughs> Johnny Handsome Air Force falls out oh, of the sky yeah. like, Hello, darling, can you help me? Gosh, <laughs> that's going to bug me, though, that I can't think of his name. Uh, we'll think of it before the show's over. So back to the Second Amendment. So you did not grow up hunting. Nope. So tell, tell us why you became such a staunch defender of the Second <laughs> Amendment. Um, well, I didn't grow up in a house with guns. I did grow up in a house where my dad was a, uh, an expert on the founding of the country, and so I totally understood the Second Amendment and, and its purpose. Uh, you know, knew how to shoot just because we had a BB gun in the house when I was a kid growing up, but, uh, but that was about the extent of it. When I was um, 21 and, and was out of the house, a friend of mine purchased a handgun for me, taught me how to use it, and um, I carried it with me. And once I was through most of college, I actually carried it with me at that time illegally for quite a long time. Um, I was convinced um, by a, a friend of mine that was a gun store owner that I went fishing with a lot. And, um, yeah, they bought me a purse to carry it in and all. And, and um, there was even a time where when I was interning as a chiropractor in Houston, one of my patients was an assistant DA. And he convinced me to carry illegally. He said, you know, you don't see the stuff that I see, which is true. I mean, sure. I grew up in a, you know, upper middle class area. I didn't see any violence. Friendswood. Friendswood, Texas. Friendly place. Man, everybody's, everybody's daddy worked at NASA. Um, so years later, after I had become a chiropractor and I had uh, moved to the Copperas Cove area, which is up by Fort Hood, um, I had a close friend that, managed the Luby's restaurant over in Colleen. It was the best restaurant in the whole area. And one day my, my parents came over, uh, caught me at the office and said, let's go have lunch. So we went and met up with my friend that was managing the place that day. And uh, it was a beautiful October day back in 1991. And we went, we went into the front of the restaurant, met my manager friend, and we found one seat over by the window, kind of at the back far corner, which wasn't our usual place to sit, but it was boss's day. And it was also the day after payday, and the place was packed. And so we sat down, the four of us sat down and ate, and, you know, just chit-chatted. And my manager friend, Mark, uh, got up to check on things in the kitchen. And all of a sudden, um, this guy drives a truck, a pickup truck, through the front window, um, maybe, you know, 15, 20 feet from me, right where we normally sit. And it knocked over a number of tables, and people went flying, plates went flying, and it came all the way into the restaurant. And, of course, you think it's an accident. Sure. Um, you know, you could see the guy throw it into park. Now, I was on the passenger side, and the, the passenger side door was probably 15 feet from me. And so I, I started to raise up and go help because all of these people had been knocked over. And then we heard gunshots. And I, I couldn't really see the guy at that point, but I understand that he was he shot a couple of times out his window, uh, so in the opposite direction from me, kind of down the serving line. And when we heard the gunshots, my dad and I immediately got down on the floor. Dad was World War II vet, you know. Um, we immediately got down on the floor through the, through the table up in front of us. Mom got down behind us. But we were kind of up in a, in a corner area, didn't have a clear way out. The, the truck was basically blocking our exit. And um, you got to realize that back in 1991, these, these mass shootings that have become so commonplace now were were not happening. 
So when I heard the gunshots, I remember thinking, okay, this is, this is a, a robbery. You know, again, it's, it's the day after payday. You figure everybody in there has got money. So I was waiting for the guy to say something like, all right, everybody put your wallets up on the table. But he didn't say anything. And the, the shooting, just the, the popping noise that you so often hear people talk about just kind of continued. And then I remember thinking, it must be a hit. There's somebody important in here. Mm-hmm. You know, that's from too much television, right? And the shooting continued. And then I remember thinking, all right, there's always cops in here. Where are the cops? No cops. The shooting just continued. The popping kept continuing. So at that point, I finally saw the guy, and he was working his way around the front of his pickup truck. And I saw him actually aim at someone who was on the ground in front of the pickup truck and pull the trigger. And this was just an innocent patron. And then he walked to the next one about this fast and aimed and pulled the trigger. And that's when I realized that this guy, I almost said a nasty word. <laughs> yeah, well. This guy was simply going to walk around and, and kill people and execute people. And back then, that was not the first thing that comes to your mind. So I, I thought, I've got him. I've got him. I mean, I reached for my purse, which was on the floor next to me, next to the chicken tetrazzini. And I, I realized, I mean, at this point, the guy's maybe 15 feet from me. He's at the front right corner of his truck. Um, I've got a place to prop my arm up on the upturned table. Everybody in the restaurant is down at this point, except for him. He's standing up. And I've hit much smaller targets at much greater distances. And then I realized that a couple of months earlier, I had made the stupidest decision of my life. I had left my gun out in my car. It was 100 yards away from me, completely freaking useless because I wanted to obey the law. And the law at the time in Texas was that you cannot carry, not concealed, not openly, not any way. You can carry it in your car. And even that was questionable. So my gun was completely useless to me. I couldn't get to it. And I remember thinking stupid thoughts like, great, what do I do now? Do I throw my purse at him? You know, do I throw a salt shaker at him? But then my, my dad took my attention, and he was to my left, down behind this, this upturned table. And he said, I've got to do something. I've got to do something. He's going to kill everybody in here. And I remember grabbing him by the shirt collar and trying to hold him down and saying, telling him that, no, if you get up, he's going to shoot you also. But when Dad saw what he thought was an opportunity, he broke loose from me and ran at the guy. But you have to understand that this guy had complete control over that restaurant at that point. Um, again, you'd be surprised. Everybody, everybody was very quiet at that point. Um, there wasn't a lot of screaming. There wasn't a lot of panic or pandemonium. It was quiet, and he had control. So my dad covered maybe half the distance, and the guy simply turned and, and, and shot him. And my dad went down in the aisle, uh, maybe seven, eight feet from me. And as dreadful as this sounds, I mean, I saw the wound, and I basically wrote him off at that point. He was still alive and still conscious, but, but I, I knew that it was fatal. The only good thing about that was that it made the gunman change directions slightly, and instead of continuing directly toward me, he went off to my left. And that was the first time I really saw him. And I remember thinking, now at the time I was, I think I was 31, 32, and this guy was about the same age. He was tall. He was good looking. He was, uh, he was dressed well. Um, he, he was driving a new truck, and I remember thinking, my God, what could be so wrong in this guy's life? And I, the stupid thoughts that go through your mind, I remember thinking, I would go out with this guy. And he, the good news was that he continued off around to my left instead of changing his direction back toward me. Um, shortly after that, I heard another crash, uh, a window crashing. And remember, at that time, you're still looking for an explanation. So I thought, my God, here comes another one. Even at that time, I thought terrorist, maybe. And I saw that somebody way at the back of the restaurant had broken out one of the windows, and people were getting out that way. And so I peeked up over the top of the table. The guy's back was toward me, 
And when I saw what I thought was a chance, I stood up, I grabbed my mother by the shirt collar, and I said, come on, come on, we got to run, we got to get out of here. And my, and I, you know, I can remember at that point, I had my back to the guy, and I didn't know if he was looking at me or not. And I can remember vividly waiting to feel impact. As, as a side note, when I was a kid, a teenager, I got shot in the arm by a, a 22. And I remember you don't feel pain initially, you feel impact. And I vividly remember having my back to him, still hearing the popping and waiting to feel impact. But as I tried to get my mom up, then my feet grew wings and I, I ran out and, and went out through that back window. And as soon as I got out there, my manager friend had come through a side door from the kitchen. And he said, thank God you're all right. And I said, yeah, but dad's been hit and it's bad. And I turned to say something to my mom and I realized she hadn't followed me out. So long story short, um, we, a lot of us ran across the street into an apartment complex and um, uh, everybody was already calling 911. Police were already arriving. And in an odd twist of, I guess, what I'd call gun control fate, a lot of the cops were actually one, one uh, building away in what was then a hotel, the Plaza Hotel, I think it was. And they had been there in a, in a conference, in a, in a police conference. And the manager of the hotel that day was uncomfortable with them carrying their guns and had asked them to lock their guns away into their uh, cars. So they said that they wasted precious minutes retrieving their weapons. They ran over there. They said when they got there, they didn't know who the bad guy was, um, but there were bodies, they said, everywhere. And the way they knew who the bad guy was was they saw a woman out in the aisle on her knees cradling a mortally wounded man. And they said the bad guy walked up to her, they said she looked up at him, he put a gun to her head, she looked down at her husband, and he pulled the trigger. And that was my parents. And they said all they had to do was shoot a gun into the ceiling, and this guy immediately rabbited to a bathroom alcove area, exchanged some gunfire with him, and eventually put a bullet in his own brain. Um, the end of the story is 23 people were killed, including both my parents. My, my father was alive when the EM, uh, EMS got there, but he, he didn't survive. So I was angry, Trey. <laughs> I, can I imagine. Mean, that's, that's really, uh, a lot of the cops were, uh, had actually been patients of mine. Uh, they took great care of me. They, took, they told us what had transpired. That's how I knew about my parents. Right. Um, but yeah, I had a lot of anger, and I, you know, when I talk about it, I still do. And a lot of it is internalized. I, I felt guilty that I had, I had decided to obey a stupid-ass law. Um, you know, I mean, seriously, if you need a gun, it's not, it's not to comb your hair. It's because your life is in danger or right. the life of a loved one is in danger. So um, even though, yeah, I'm not a hunter, I mean, I support hunters' rights, but uh, I, I, and oddly enough, I don't even care about guns. To me, it's just a, it's a hunk of metal. It's a tool, and it's a tool that can be used to kill a family or a tool that can be used to protect a family. It all right. depends on who has it. So, Susanna, as long as I've known you and as many times as I've heard that story, I still have the same two reactions. One is the hair on the back of my neck always stands up, and I get angry um, I guess on your behalf, I get angry at our legislators who prevented you and prevented other people from protecting themselves. Yeah. But I know time and time again, you have said, yes, I was angry, but I wasn't angry at him, at the shooter. Tell us why. You know, I know that sounds nuts, but you can go back and look at the, the newspaper articles the second day where I was quoted, and I said I wasn't angry at the guy that did it because, to me, honestly, we're not talking about a career criminal. Um, we're talking about somebody who went nuts. They had worms for brains, and you can't, you can't be angry at that. That's no different than being angry at a rabid dog. You take it behind the barn and you kill it, but you don't be angry at it. Right. But I really honestly was angry as hell at my legislators because I felt that they had legislated me out of the right to protect myself and my family. The only thing the laws that day did was keep the good people in there 
from protecting themselves. And it wasn't just me. There were several people that later said they had guns out in their cars. One one gentleman, he tried to retrieve to be his right, gun. But wanted to be yeah, upstanding. Wanted of course. To, you know. and, and back then, you figure, what are the odds? Yeah. You know, if, you, if you're going to have an incident, it's going to be if you, in my case, I remember thinking, well, okay, I'm a single woman. If I break down on a back road somewhere, yeah, I parking could be Parking garage risk. or some, some seedy environment. So having it in lubies. my car was, yeah, but in a bright, sunny day in a crowded place was not where you expect to need your gun. Of course, since then, we've had a number of instances where now I think in a bright, on a bright sunny day in a crowded place is where you need to have your gun. Especially if it's a gun-free zone. Oh, my gosh. Right? Mm-hmm. OSHA for criminals, <laughs> right? Yes, absolutely. And I mean, seriously, if I'm a bad guy that wants to kill a lot of people, wants a high body bag count, yeah. Do you want to, yeah. am I going to go to a place with a no-gun zone, or am I going to go to, I don't know, an NRA convention or, a, yeah, or the dreaded gun Nugent show? Let's go to a concert right? or a campus. <laughs> right. That's right. Which one is going to guarantee to not have any guns? And that seems right. so clear and so obvious to me that sometimes it's, it's almost hard for me to argue because sometimes what people say strikes me as so incredibly stupid that I, I genuinely have trouble arguing it. Right. Yeah. So... You know, we've seen plenty of examples. Uh, Mrs. Brady is a good example, uh, whose husband was shot when President Reagan was shot. So we've seen plenty of examples of people in a situation similar to yours who immediately become rabidly anti-gun. And they they march and they speak and they... No fly uh, list. they, They do everything they can to try to ban every gun in America... But you didn't react that way. Why is that? I guess, that's a great question. I guess because I, you know, I I think it's because there are two kinds of people. And this is uh, digressing just a little bit. But when I talked to some of the other survivors, I remember a couple of people that I asked them, how did you survive? Because you were in an area that was really kind of a kill zone where, you know, up close to that truck. And I remember one girl telling me that she was on the floor and she turned her head into the baseboard and just shut her eyes. Hmm. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting because I, there was no way I could do that. If, if anything, if that guy had come back around to me, I remember the old cartoon with the little mouse on the ground and the owl bearing down at it from above with its talons outstretched. And the little mouse has its finger extended. (laughs) And it says, the last act of defiance. And I remember thinking, if it gets back around to me, he's going to get that. I I think there are two people, two kinds of people in the world. I, I I couldn't just sit there and take it without some sort of defiance. And I think there are people that think that others are going to save them. Hmm. And I don't know if that answers your question, but I just always felt like, Nobody. you know, it's, it's up to you. It's up to you. If not you, then who? Right. 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 So after that point, that was in 1991. After that point, you became active in promoting legislation here in Texas to allow Texans to carry concealed handguns. In one session, I believe Jerry Patterson, then Senator Jerry Patterson, carried the bill uh, both times. The first time he passed it, Governor Ann Richards vetoed it. It's true. Which, in my opinion, is what led to George W. Bush becoming governor of Texas. Yes, I agree. The next legislative session, which would have been 1995, you came, you testified, you were, you were instrumental in making sure that that law passed. You know, that's, a, again, that's, I get credit for that a lot. That's, that's a team effort, and, um, you know, I'd like to think I had a part in it. Why did it fail the time before? What was Ann Richards' reason for it, that? It was actually a... Um, for vetoing. I think, I think what she ended up vetoing was a referendum. Um, I think the bill that end, I think the bill that ended up passing would have uh, allowed for the people of Texas That's to right. vote That's right. whether or not it could become law. And she she vetoed that. And I think a lot of people got really upset about that. And um, yeah, I think it came back to bite her. 
probably people who never had any intention of applying for a permit or caring were mad that she said to them, I'm taking away your right to decide this issue. And what year was this? By the way, that, that would have been 93 because okay. it passed in 95. It finally, the actual concealed carry permitting law that Jerry Patterson and Bill Carter and Ron Wilson. Okay. I was just wondering, I was trying to time it out with the next global shooting disaster. And I was thinking, oh, I wonder if, if it was failing and then Columbine or something. But that was in 97, I think. No, but I'll, I'll tell you that I, I, you know, I went all over the country and testified in, in People try and make you states. into things you weren't, like for the cause. Which, I mean, uh, I'm forgetting, but no, like, I also wouldn't want to be used in a way where it's like, well, no, that's not what I, I'm talking about. I, I'll, I'll tell you, if at, at the time, right right after the incident, um, I started getting calls because I was willing, my, my family and I, I wasn't married yet, but my brother and my sister and I made a decision to talk to the press. Um, and it was a very conscious, thought out decision. And the reason for it was because we knew the press had to, they have to report I mean, they have to report, and, and if you speak to them and they get it wrong, you have a good reason to be mad at them. But if you speak to them, uh, you know, if you don't speak to them at all and they get it wrong, it's kind of hard to be mad at them. I mean, they've got nobody that's willing to talk. So I think because of my comment about being mad at the legislature, you know, I think that kind of uh, tweaked a lot of media out there. That was kind and, of that little twist moment. Yeah, and um, so they... I made a conscious decision to talk to the media most of the time. I actually had, uh, I met a gentleman right there in Copper's Cove, and this is an, another odd twist in gun control fate. It was, his name was Neil Knox, and at the time he was first vice president of the NRA. Now, I didn't know him from Adam, okay? But I had lunch with him. Um, he introduced himself. I had lunch with him. His brother, Rusty Knox, was a Lampasas resident, okay, in my own home county. And Rusty had uh, two or three of his coworkers killed that day. Rusty was supposed to be there and mm. had waited for a client and ended up being late, and they ended up going to Red Lobster instead. So it was very personal for him. And he talked to me, and, and I remember that particular day I had gotten a call from Geraldo. Oh, boy. Remember Geraldo? I wish I didn't. I know, right? <laughs> yes, I do. And I remember fresh telling off him. off of uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Capone's tomb at that point. Oh, no, it was before that. <laughs> oh, really? yeah, it was before that. It was, it was, I think it was after he had gotten the, th- the chair thrown at him, though, and right. got the, the right. n- his nose busted. But, but I remember telling it's to, Neil. It's hard to miss that nose. <laughs> I remember telling Neil, I said, well, you know, I don't mind talking to the press, but I said, I'm not going on those trash shows and he stopped me and he said wait a minute he said stop and think about this a minute how many times do you have an opportunity to speak to millions of people and tell your side of the story and I said oh my gosh yeah but you know he makes people cry and he makes it he said it doesn't matter what he does you can tell whatever story you want to tell and have an audience of millions and I had never thought of it that way. And long story short, I ended up going on Geraldo a couple of times. Jerry Springer, back wow, in the day boy. when he was a semi-real kind of guy. Did their faces acknowledge that, oh my God, she has a plan, as opposed to every other show they do, it's based on they're just hijacking people and their emotions. Were they kind of, do you remember their faces being like, oh, snap. She knows what she wants to say. Um, with Jerry Springer the second time around, yeah. Yeah. Um, but but I did do it, and I've pretty much done every scumbag show you can think of. That's my opinion, Trey Blocker. <laughs> well. Scumbag is strictly my opinion. Yes, uh, we'll put that disclaimer on the, Thank you on, very the, much. on the episode when we post it at treyblocker.com. Interestingly, about every year and a half, two years, a video clip circulates oh, <laughs> around the Internet, around the nation, if not beyond, and it's a video clip of you... Uh, testifying in front of Congress, in front of Senator Chuck Schumer, and he's kind of wagging his finger at you, and you very pointedly made some comments to him. Um, How much of that day do you remember, and can you tell us what you said to him? (laughs) 
I can't help but remember it because the video keeps going around. <laughs> um, it amazes me. We'll that have that to post that as well. Oh my God! And yes, I loved and your hair, send me. By the way. Oh, thank you. The big, the big hair. <laughs> Tiffany. Was Ten years that was very too late. Tiff. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> that I just wish I could get a buck for every time sure. that video was played. Absolutely. I could. I could go to Starbucks. <sighs> you have an island. Um, yeah, I would. Um, so, yeah, I was asked to testify before Congress, and um, I was actually originally, they had me slated to go on, the, I think they had three panels, and the first panel would have been with um, uh, Sarah Brady. Right. And I remember calling my husband the night before and saying, I'll bet you $100 right now that they pull me off that panel. Hmm. Because there had been three or four times already that, that I sh- was supposed to be on a show with Sarah, and they always pulled it. They always mm. changed it. They were controlling the narrative. And my, my impression was that, um, I mean, bless her heart, she went through some awful things, but, but my impression was that she wasn't that bright, hmm. honestly. That's cruel to say, but that was my impression. Colby. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah. can get to that story later. Um, so anyway, sure enough, literally 10 minutes before the meeting was supposed to, the hearing was supposed to start the next morning at, at nine o'clock, they pulled me off that, that mm. panel. And did he pay you a hundred dollars? Yeah, no, no, no. no. My didn't. Hus- did my husband <laughs> pay yeah. me? Did he pay a hundred Yeah, bucks? no, I don't think he did. He still <laughs> owes me too. So, um, they had the, the Brady bunch up there doing, doing their thing. And they had all of these, these victims, you know, of mm-hmm. terrible shootings at that point. And they all would say oh and they also had a whole bunch of guns in the hearing room i mean they i don't remember now but they probably had a hundred guns in there i may be exaggerating and they were every it was every ugly gun you could possibly i don't know don't tell me see people think i know something about guns (laughs) and the truth is i don't i don't know anything you can make this is back when they were making probably the first or second or 20th attempt to ban assault rifles oh yeah yeah, yeah. right yeah yeah and and they would hold them up i'm not kidding you if you could picture this i know this is radio my husband said, I have a face for radio. I don't know. That's oh, nice. boy. Stomp his toes. <laughs> hey, he married me. Um, so they would pick up the guns. If you can imagine this, if you can imagine picking up a rat by the tail, you know, a dead rat, they would hold a gun up like that, and they would say, this gun has no legitimate sporting purpose. And they said that in the three hours that I sat there, because they placed me on the third panel, they said that dozens of times. The victim said it. These guns have no legitimate sporting purpose. And so, long story short, when I got up there um, and I, I gave my testimony, I had given my testimony a couple of dozen times at least in different states. And even people who were on the other side of the issue from me were always polite and respectful. And honestly, Chuck Schumer was dreadful. And you couldn't see it from the cameras, but he was up there chit-chatting with his his aide and chuckling while I'm talking about my parents being murdered it was very it was really really disconcerting and, it, and I was fully aware that the that the cameras weren't catching it he even rolled his eyes at one point oh wow and I was just it was really kind of throwing me off my game and um so at the end of it uh you know a couple other people spoke and I finally raised my hand and again on this small panel and he recognized me and by the way there was another guy on that panel that uh was not a usual member of the panel he was a a african-american man from i think chicago area his last name was mcdonald and he was later in the news but i'll go back to that Uh, they had just invited him invited him to be on the panel that day so I raised my hand and I, sa- I said, look, I know this isn't going to make me any friends, but I've been watching for three hours how you've hold the- held these guns up like they're dead rats and said that they have no legitimate sporting purpose. And I, I think I went on to say um, the-, the Second Amendment doesn't have anything to do with duck hunting. It has everything to do with all of us out here. And I kind of waved my hand toward all the people behind me being able to protect ourselves from all of you up there and it was the elephant in the room and nobody i remember looking around the table and all these people had jobs to lose sure and nobody was saying it you know but i didn't have a job to lose so i said it and i remember the the mcdonald looking at me and he said well young lady you obviously have no respect for us up here 
and he later ended up in uh, with a felony charge for doing his 16-year-old. Yep, there you have it. And yeah, so. Well, and that's the point. Yeah. The Second Amendment is not about hunting. It is about defending our liberty and defending ourselves, which we have a right to do, and our founding fathers ensured that we had that right. So, If we can keep it. So what if we can keep it, and that's, that's, the, that's the ultimate question. So what, do you, what, do you, what are you doing these days? I have been working for um, the, our Texas Health and Human Services Commission, and I've been fortunate enough to be their uh, director for the Office of Veteran Services, and we are doing everything we can to make life better for veterans in Texas. And i got to tell you, if you're a veteran somewhere in the United States listening to this right now, you want to be in Texas. This is the happening place. We've, we've got the first uh, phone app. Uh, I think it's the first phone app in the country for Texas veterans. It's the Texas Veterans app. gives them access to all kinds of benefits and information. So we're really proud of that. Good. Well, we have a 1,000 people moving to Texas every day, so I think there are a lot of people who want to be here, and we'd certainly welcome more veterans. I saw them all on the road on the way over here. (laughs) (laughs) Susanna, we appreciate you coming into the show today and sharing your story and we appreciate all that you've done on behalf of the Second Amendment and, and defending all of our rights to, to own and bear firearms. And per tradition, we've asked you to share with us a quote, a song lyric, a Bible verse, something that means something to <laughs> yeah. you. Impactful this is so words. profound. And, well, we've, we've, been, we've been waiting with bated breath. <laughs> For, for this quote. Well, so. I see, I, and and here's the, here's the issue, and I'm sorry, but I couldn't come up with a quote. I've thought of three things that are meaningful to me. Three. Three. You know, Charlie and I have joked because everybody we say come with a quote. That means one, and everybody comes in with two, and oh, so now you've set a record. I'm three. so sorry. <laughs> no, I'm proud no, of you. No, you know, we are all about educating folks, so please share. So for my, my own personal life, Um, the quote is that the world is a better place when viewed from the back of a horse. I'm just saying. (laughs) Okay, and and my second quote, which almost comes off as advice, because as you know, Trey, when, when you're in the legislature, you take thousands of votes, thousands of them, and you don't always understand completely what you're voting for. Sure. I mean, that's the truth. And one of my favorite quotes and possibly even advice is always default to freedom. When in doubt, when in doubt, default to freedom. But my own personal really favorite quote comes from an old science fiction writer, Robert Heinlein, who was one of my favorites. He said, everything to excess, moderation is for monks. <laughs> ah, now, see, now that, you just found your way into Charlie Hodge's heart. <laughs> moderation is for monks. You want to close this out, Mr. Hodge? I do. You've been listening to The Trey Blocker Show. Find more episodes at treyblocker.com or at your favorite podcast app. And tune in next time to The Trey Blocker Show.